0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. And in this episode, we're talking about a little book series, a little TV show, a little franchise uh, known as The Strain.
1: Yeah, so this is something that Guillermo del Toro uh, originally came out with as a series of novels with chuck hogan Mm -hmm. uh and it is primarily you know we're going to try not to spoil this story for anybody during this episode it's primarily about vampires but they have a very particular kind of biology that's unique to this story so what we were thinking was that we could take a look at that and how it relates to the biology of actual parasites and vampire-like creatures in nature
0: yeah it's kind of in the same vein with some past episodes we've done with uh Monster of the Week uh, blog series, mon- uh, Monster Science video series, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, I know some of you out there love The Strain. Some of you out there may hate The Strain. And a number of you have no idea what we're talking about, perhaps. Right. Maybe you'll end up checking some of it out because of this episode. But uh, but we're going to use the show. We're going to use uh, the books, which you've read, but I have not. I have, Yeah, I've read the books, and I've read the comics, mm-hmm. and I've watched the first season. Okay. And I've watched the first and second season up until like this right where yeah right where it's at now yeah so we're not gonna we're not gonna get into spoilers related what happens to characters in the book or on the Mm -hmm. tv show uh we are going to discuss the biology of the fictional creature so as to discuss real world comparisons but uh but that's about it so if you want like if you want to enter into the show just 100 percent purist unspoiled then I guess you should skip this episode and come back to it later. But uh, but for the most part, you don't have to worry.
1: Yeah, so for the most part, what we're going to do is stick to the biology of these things. And I think a good place to start is with Del Toro himself. So if you're not familiar with his movies, Del Toro is, uh, I, I think it's fair to call him a horror mastermind, or at least he's considered one. Yeah. Uh, he's done movies about vampires before. He's done uh f- Fantasy kind of fairy tale movies, movies about demons. He's very into the gothic horror supernatural genre. Uh, he's has he done? He, he's also done some stuff that isn't supernatural, though, right? I, I feel like
0: has he? I don't know that he has. I feel like like even his, you know, he has his two types of films. He has yeah. the 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 more personal artsy films, and then the the bigger budget stuff. But yeah. they all seem to have monsters in them. Maybe yeah. He has a monster free uh film out there i am totally forgetting it
1: yeah i am too maybe maybe i'm i'm wrong on this but yeah so the um the the first two vampire movies that he worked on though the first one was chronos which mm-hmm. is what like 20 years old at this yeah, point yeah that was his please? first uh feature film yeah mm-hmm. uh and then uh he also directed the classic blade 2 ah which i love uh yeah I, i'm a fan as well <laughs> And uh, uh, there is a particular kind of vampire in both of these that sort of we can look back to as the, you know, uh, Er vampire for Del Toro's Vampires mm-hmm. in the Strain. Before we get into that, I think it's really interesting. He, there's a quote by him where he uh, talks about why he was interested in creating the show in the first place. And he said that since he was a little kid, he's always kept a notebook full of ideas about vampire mutations, biology, sociology, and mythology. So this is just something... Something he's been thinking about since he was a child. He knows, you know, he put he put some of it in Chronos, he put some of it in Blade, but he really wanted the strain to be like his his opus on vampires.
0: Yeah, yeah, he and you and you really get that from the, these pr- properties, you know, like well, whatever failings there might be regarding you know the the main characters and this or that or yeah. or the you know the the plot or the narrative you can't fault the monsters because the man the man loves his monsters and it's 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 clear the amount of work he puts into it the people that he brings in to design like he's always bringing in such a fantastic team of yeah. artists and i understand he sets up when when he's developing any of these properties he sets up in the middle of the art department like it's not another room he's there in the middle of it
1: saying that's great that's great. I believe that's his background mm-hmm. is that he worked in uh television i want to say in spanish language television uh, as like an art director before he started directing and writing himself. Mm -hmm. But yeah, have you ever looked at, um, there, I, they may even have published a version of this, of his notebooks.
0: Yes. I've seen, they're
1: fascinating. Like each, each project he works on, he just fills a notebook with drawings and little writings and scribblings. And he's an amazing artist as well. So Mm -hmm. you get to see kind of his ideas for how these things flesh out. Literally flesh out, because he's really into the the flesh. Yes, he is. He seems like there's always a monster autopsy scene in any film he does, which is... Which is perfect. Absolutely. And he is, uh, seriously got an obsession with jaws and mandibles and tongues. Yes. Like pretty much everything. Uh, I remember watching Pacific Rim, mm-hmm. which is what, that's the last major feature that he came out At with. I believe so. And, and yeah, and even the giant monsters in that, the, the kaiju had these like mandibles that separated off of their face and these huge tongues that shot out. He's, he's really into that. Yeah, I but be, I
0: believe on, on most of his recent films, he's brought in Wayne Barlow as one of the artists. Yeah, Which is, of course, his work designing alien physiologies and demonic physiologies, all based on a background that he and his parents had in uh, in, in in natural world illustrations. This is Wayne Barlow, not Wayne Del Barlow, Toro. not Del Toro. Yeah. yeah, but Wayne Barlow's work is just so. I mean. He, you believe any design that he, he gives you. you mm-hmm. It feels like a, a real
1: fleshy creature that you've just never witnessed before. Yeah. So his, his team that he works with, uh, that he's kind of, a, uh, he's assembled this like a team over the years of working on projects, but Wayne Barlow is a mainstay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then another guy who I'm a fan of is Guy Davis, who is a comic book illustrator who's worked on stuff like the BPRD, his own book, The Marquee. Uh, and he did a, a really interesting, one of his first comics was like a punk rock take on Sherlock Holmes. If huh. Sherlock Holmes was a woman in the 70s who was a punk rocker. Nice. Uh, it was fascinating. Uh, it, it's good stuff. But uh, Guy is also just an amazing concept artist. And so he's designed monsters as well, along with that team. Uh, with Wayne, and then, uh, looking at the research that we had for this episode, there were two guys in particular that seemed to work with them on the actual special effects and makeup. It was, uh, Steve Newburn and Sean Sansom are the team on, on the, at least the first season of The Strain. They were responsible for a lot of the practical special effects. Now just
0: to go back to Kronos and Blade 2 for a second. Um, in Kronos, we saw vampirism as this, uh, kind of hybrid of, uh, of an you know alchemical insect clockwork contraption uh that was pretty interesting like it kind of pins to you sinks its teeth in and begins the transformation
1: yeah i had uh, actually forgotten the the main plot of that movie because it's been so long since i've seen it so i reread the summary before we came into the studio and it really uh immediately came back to me that what stuck with me was the aesthetic imagery of that clockwork bug thing mm-hmm. you know piercing people more and and also the like sort of marblish white uh translucent skin yeah of, of the vampire
0: yeah that that definitely stuck with me and that's something he came back to in blade too as well for mm-hmm. the, the elder vampire in that where you have this this ancient creature that is you know at once beautiful and ghastly that it's it's taken on this nosferatu appearance but it also has the look of, like, a marbled statue. So it's that kind of uh, uh,
1: dichotomy that I I feel like uh, he he, he captures really well in his features. Yeah, he does a a great job, you know, this is pop culture talk, not science talk, but he does a great job of honoring the sort of lineage of vampire stories Mm -hmm. and incorporating aspects of Nosferatu or Dracula into these things, but also putting his own spin on it by adding weird science, I guess, is the best way to put it. Yes, yes.
0: The um, the reapers in Blade Two, which are like yeah. the bad uh, new strain of vampires that are even closer to what we see in the strain. Uh, they have these uh, cool mandible jaws that open like the jaw. Uh, the, the lower jaw splits down the middle and becomes yeah. mandibles, and then there's a, a, a proboscis type uh, tongue that comes out to pump out blood. And my favorite bit, which I think I mentioned in the Stigmata episode, is that they have. Uh, hardened bone plating right. on front and back, so the only way to stab him in the heart is to go in if through they, the side. Yeah, like under the armpit, yeah. right? Yeah. Where, where you get into this, into, the of course, the Catholic imagery that Del Toro is really into as well.
1: Yeah, and uh, I, I think it's important to note, too, th- this is also part of the strain in, in a number of his uh, uh, designs, I suppose, mm-hmm. but there's definitely a vagina dentata thing theme going on with his vampire monsters yeah. and that like their monster mouths kind of open up and have teeth in a way that like the Vagina Dentata mythology I think uh, represents. Yeah I remember listening to the Blade 2 um, director's commentary
0: Oh uh, I have not heard that. A while back because like I say I really loved that movie yeah. it came out and it's one of those I could probably watch any time but I remember Del Toro pointing to like different scenes and saying yes that, that door kind of looks like a vagina this doorway <laughs> kind of looks like a vagina so he was like that Catholicism and monsters. That's his thing. Did you ever see the third one? Yes. Because in the
1: third one, I think they took it. Didn't they take his model? It, he did not direct it, but they took his model and like applied it to a Pomeranian dog. Yeah. Right? It kind of has a cameo with a Pomeranian. Yeah. It, just just to mock you uh, with how great <laughs> the, the second one was. Yeah. So, all right. Before, basically, this is how we're going to play this out. We'll present to you how the vampires in the strain are biologically formed, how their fictional biology works. Mm-hmm. And then the second part of this episode, we're going to talk about strigoi, which is what they call them in the series, mm-hmm. uh, in the natural world. So everything from wasps to uh, creepy worms, syphilis, you name it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to try to cover it. Excellent. All right, so let's do it. Let's uh, dissect the Strigoi here. Um,
0: do you want to take us through this?
1: Yeah, I will try. So uh, there, he definitely has thought out from beginning to end a process through which these things go through. And it all starts with a worm, this kind of capillary worm that passes from one creature to another. Uh, and in the case of the vampires, they, you know, they bleed the worms Mm -hmm. or, you know, when they, when they drink the blood of their victims, they pass the worms on to their victims. Or they might vomit it into your face. Yeah. uh, Is there one or two of those as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, it can really happen, like, uh, any way that, like, even if you, like, touch, I think, like, spilled blood by one of these things, there's worms in it that'll burrow into your skin, right?
0: Yeah. They're always, uh, like, wiping off their swords because they end up with, you know, that i core on them with little, uh little worms
1: so this worm is essentially responsible for the whole fictional biology of these vampires and the way that it works is you get infected by one of them you lie in a suspended state of animation for about a day and then the following night you rise as a vampire and it so it's not like the idea of the vampire from sort of Past fiction where it kills the victim, they die, they're buried, and then they rise. These people are still alive, they're just undergoing like a metamorphosis.
0: Yeah, yeah, like the, definitely it's a situation where the parasite transforms the host
1: um, into really a different kind of organism. Mm-hmm. And they. The primary thing, like I think the first thing in these uh, vampires' biology that changes is they grow a six foot long stinger out of their mouth, mm-hmm. uh, that fills up their torso cavity. Uh, and I guess what's supposed to happen is the lungs and the throat tissue all kind of like melt down and recompose and modify into this stinger thing. And it's hideously long too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, and it, uh, is how they feed. They shoot it out of their mouths and latch onto people. Or they also, that's how they pass on worms to other people to spread the infection. Uh, and like the, like we mentioned with the mandibles of the Blade 2 vampires, their jaws are on this weird lower hinge and they kind of, you know, drop so that the stinger has room to come out of. And that, I think, in the storylines, uh, at least from my experience with the books and the comics, I think it takes, like, that's the first thing. Like, within eight hours, you've got a stinger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you might still have a little bit of your personality. But then it takes seven days for this other set of of traits to change within your body. So, uh, your skin becomes opaque. Your digestive system gets fused together. Uh, the stinger forms, of course, you lose your hair and your fingernails and your nose and also your genitals and ears. So the vampires are, are sexless kind of, uh, they're, they're very machine like, you know, in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways, right? They just kind of dump all of the, uh, (laughs) non-essentials of the human body, uh, and then their fingers grow into talon-like things, which I don't know if they use them as weapons as much as they do for, like, crawling around on walls and stuff, right? Yeah,
0: I think in the show you you do see them use less
1: as weapons because, I mean, they got that stinger, right? Why, yeah. Why would you yeah. even have to use your claws? So the idea then is that, you know, after Seven Nights, they're fully formed into these sort of hairless white... Uh, stinger beasts that troll around and, you know, kill humans and turn them into more vampires. And most of them are kind of zombie-like uh, as opposed yeah.
0: to the, the very few who have uh, like a rational mind. Yeah. Their
1: it, within the fictional world, I'd say like there's only like two or three maybe vampires that have sort of uh, control or, or uh, individuality. Mm-hmm. The rest of them sort of turn into this hive mind of of almost like insects, actually. Yeah. um so there are a couple of ways that they used science, or they tried to use science. It's kind of hokey pseudoscience. To well, you know, in.
0: sometimes when when fiction meets science, <laughs> you have yeah. to
1: you have to build the bridge a little bit between it. Oh yeah. yeah, and I certainly I think this is the best part about the strain too. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of attention put into this, but uh, so the mythology of vampires being vulnerable to silver—that's because silver has an antiviral, bacterial quality that disinfects these worms and is somehow able to sort of burn through the, the the tissue that they've created uh, and then they're also vulnerable to UV light which is where the you know they can't go into sunlight thing comes from because the UV light also has germicidal properties it's on a certain kind of wavelength that breaks down the tissue within the vampire bodies mm-hmm. um, this is an interesting sort of science-y thing that del Toro threw into there so his vampires can't vomit okay. and all of their waste is excreted from a cloaca Uh, that, you know, they're, they lose their genitals and everything fuses down there into a cloaca and, uh, their waste is all just ammonia spray, which they usually emit while they're eating. So like while they're drinking the blood of their victims, they're also spraying ammonia out behind them. And he based this on ticks because apparently ticks have no space inside of their bodies for the food that they eat. So when like a tick is on you and it's drinking your blood, uh, this is all from Del Toro. I didn't do tick research for this episode, but uh, he says that they, they spray out uh, their waste as they're drinking. Huh?
0: You know, that reminds me, I was reading about scorpions recently, or actually it was a a really cool article about the anus and the evolution of the anus. Yeah. And they they, they mentioned a, a particular type of scorpion that can jettison its tail when threatened, much like a lizard. Really? Uh, yeah, autotomy. Uh, and, uh, and in this case, though, when they jettison their tail, they also jettison their anus. Huh. So they can no longer um, defecate at that point, so they just continue to balloon up. With uh, feces
1: for the rest of their life. And then die from it eventually? Like yeah. oh, there's a toxic, huh? <laughs> Only here on Stuff to Blow Your Mind will you go from anus to scorpion to vampire. <laughs> um, you know, I do want to throw in real quick that um, an- another interesting
0: vampire myth uh, uh, tidbit that they uh, em- employ in the strain is the whole vampires cannot cross moving water of their own volition. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. which uh, which they never really flesh out because it's it's kind of more of a magical idea but I think it's at least hinted that this might have to do with like the evolutionary history of the worm
1: that like something in the worm abhors moving water there is i don't want to spoil it for our listeners or for you but there is a explanation to it that Ooh. comes in the third book i want to say and maybe you know w- the i guess if the tv show is a season for every book it would probably be in the third season okay well i, ha- yeah. I have that to look forward. yeah to. there is a sort of explanation i don't think it's sciencey though but okay. th- i like i like your idea better yeah, because as we'll end up
0: exploring, um you know, water, moving water, parasites, and parasitic manipulation of the
1: host—hugely uh, important, hugely important. Yeah, we do see that in in the real world. So Del Toro himself has said in interviews that he based these worms and the strain on two real worms. Uh, the first one is the heartworm, which we're all familiar with. If you have a pet, if you have mm-hmm. a dog, I just gave my dog his heartworm pill this morning. Uh, and it, you know, it's a worm that lodges itself in the heart of dogs. It's not a thing that you want. And then the other is a, an old friend of stuff to blow your mind. The horsehair worm. Oh yes. Uh, we did a video about this a while back and I'll I'll link to it on the uh, landing page. It is. Um, I gotta say this episode was a little tough for me to research. (laughs) Um, I I really feel like I've gotten my, uh, my, my badge of, of stuff to blow your mind courage this week because, uh, there's some pretty disgusting stuff uh, in the biology of these different parasites and insects. And just watching the video of the horsehair worm squirm its way out of a cricket's body is uh. Uh, it just gives me goosebumps. Uh, it's it's chilling, but it's also fascinating. And I definitely recommend that you go watch that video because I had not heard of it before you did that episode. Yeah, that was one. I think I mentioned it in the episode
0: that I, I saw it in like a junior high band class where some girl.
1: You saw a real one. Yeah,
0: yeah. Like oh. there was a cricket on the floor, and this girl in the clarinet section, she was acting. She was acting like all you know, grossed out by it, uh-huh. and she uh, she stopped the cricket, uh, which I thought was a little, yeah. little over to the top. Yeah. But then in perfect karma, she was then legitimately horrified by the sight of the horsehair <laughs> worm emerging. You know, impossibly long from the belly yeah. of the cricket and crawling across the room floor. So,
1: yeah, they are. I mean, a lot of these things that we're about to talk about are are pretty vile. Uh, and I'd like to quote. There was an article that I research, I or, or read for this uh, episode that was about the strain, and it was the only other thing I could find that was like this episode. It was about the strain and the science behind parasites. Uh, and the science writer at Vox, her name is Susanna Locke. She was the expert that they spoke to about these. Uh, And she had this quote in this that I really liked. She said, for as creepy as you can make some monster, there are almost certainly 10 or 11 things out there in nature that are even creepier, which is uh, that's nice. I like that. And she's she's right. It's a there's just something about these things that just are revolting. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing I I find again and again with
0: my um, Monster of the Week uh, and, and Monster Science series is that. Like Sometimes I approach it by, like, there's a cool article that comes out, and I'm Mm. like, oh, that's some neat biology. I wonder what that matches up with in fictional monsters. But then other times, it's just, if you think of any elaborate monster, if you watch a film and you say, hey, that's a really cool monster design, and then you wonder, is there something in the real world that matches up or exceeds that? There almost always is.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's uh, where the imagination probably comes from in the first place. Oh, yeah. Uh, Del Toro himself you know, we mentioned earlier about how he was obsessed with vampires as a little kid. Well, he also refers to himself as a biologically perverse guy. (laughs) Uh, and he he said when he was a kid that he, he's always, uh, keeping jars of things like jars of animals and blood. And he had little dissection tables. So he would just do his own little autopsies on animals, (laughs) which is terrifying. Yeah. And, uh, just makes me think of that, uh, that old adage that, you know, the, the kind of people who torture, I mean, he's not torturing animals, but you know, opening up, uh, Animals, his little kids are probably going to grow up to be a psychopath. Instead, he grew up to be an artistic genius. That's right. Keep financing his films <laughs> or else. Yeah, we're not. This episode is not financed by Crimson Peak coming to a theater soon near you. One last thing before we get into the examples. There was another great piece of research that we found uh, that was uh, actually Susanna Locke's article led to it. A guy named Ed Yong did a TED Talk about parasites uh, and and the kind of uh, zombie-ish effects that they can have on various uh, animals, m- mostly insects, but uh, cats are covered as well. Um, and he says, I think this is part of what makes parasites so sinister and compelling. We place a premium on our free will and our independence, we being humans. And that the prospect of losing those qualities to forces unseen informs many of our deepest societal fears. So this gets right to the heart of what scared me the most about vampires when I was a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, I very clearly remember my, my first interaction with vampire fiction was an episode of Spider-Man and his amazing friends. And uh, Dracula was the villain that they fought in that episode. And something uh, something happened where his amazing friends Firestar, I believe, was the the his uh, female superhero friend. Uh-huh. Uh, she was turned into a vampire, huh. and it. I was. I mean, I was probably. Like, Four or five, and I remember like doing that thing where you stand by the door and you're watching the TV with one eye around the corner of the door <laughs> because I was so scared of this cartoon Dracula. That's weird
0: that Dracula himself showed up because uh, uh, what's the name of the actual vampire that is in like kind of the
1: Blade and Marvel? Movies? Oh, Morbius, the yeah. living vampire. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if he ever showed up in the cartoon, but uh Marvel not t- the old one, right? You're talking about that that really old Spider-Man cartoon. Yeah, the one from the '80s. Oh, okay. This yeah. one, uh, the, there was an older Spider man cartoon i believe in the late 60s early 70s but um, marvel had a string of horror comics that came out in the 70s and dracula was one of them okay. uh, i think probably because i would assume the rights to that were open and they could just do whatever they wanted with it <laughs> cool well, the, i like that quote from from young though because it because the
0: whole issue of parasites and free will uh, the whole idea of vampires and free will uh, certainly uh, certainly resonates because in vampires you often see themes of addiction um, are, are explored, themes of uh, disease, themes mm-hmm. of parasites, all things that suddenly turn the table on us and say, well, maybe we are not in control of our bodies. Yeah. If our bodies are telling us to drink this and making these things happen to
1: ourselves. You know? Some stories have gone so far as to make it a, a metaphor for uh, like HIV, for instance. Yeah. Like a, it's a blood Disease and it again it changes our bodies against our will. We don't have any control over it. Yeah, J- the I, that idea is I think inherently uh, revolting, especially yeah. to human beings, and maybe maybe specifically to Americans. I don't know. There might be a cultural study on that, but we value our independence so highly in mm-hmm. our culture that maybe there's something to that that affects us more. Well, you know, and that brings
0: us to syphilis, mm. um, and I and I'm, we're not going to go too in depth on syphilis because we have. Two episodes in the past that we did on syphilis, looking at syphilis uh, as a disease, uh, looking at the um, uh, trepanema palladium, the uh, the the organism that uh, causes syphilis, as well as the history and cultural impact of it. Um, But just to uh, to refresh. Uh, Treponema palladium, It is a thin, tightly coiled spiral This little uh, little worm creature that causes syphilis. It's sexually transmitted, and the illness spread through Europe from the mid fifteenth century onward. And uh, before the advent of antibiotics, it was one of the most common infections afflicting up to ten percent of the adult population in western in the Western world. And it was an incurable. It was incurable for four point five centuries. Um, and when you really start teasing apart the impact of syphilis in the Western world, it's difficult to overstate it. Um, it was widespread spread again. It was incurable, uh, it was a thing to be feared, and uh, and of course, when we, as we've been discussing, when we, we take our monsters, we're when, when we create monsters, we're giving our
1: fears a uh, form and face and uh, a force all their own. Yeah, I think that uh, it's important to recall like how prevalent syphilis was at, at a, to- a time before we were alive, and that I imagine from what I've read of, of uh, you know the, the the period that it was most active was that. I say most active as if it was like a living, you know, one single-minded creature. But 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 uh it was really uh it had a huge impact on the cultural uh zeitgeist, I guess. Yeah. Uh, uh you know, people were in fear of it and there was a also a sort of um, Uh, disgust towards those who had contracted it? Yeah, because it was, I mean,
0: you know, in the past, pretty much any illness or physical ailment is tied to the soul, Uh, but certainly with syphilis, because it, of course, is is tied uh, to sexual contact. Right. And, uh, And so... Uh, You know, and not exclusively sexual contact. You could also, there's also congenital uh, syphilis in which you're just born with it. Um,
1: But there is an assumption uh, in a lot of cases, you know, if you found out that somebody had syphilis, you assumed that they got it from, you know, loose sexual practices, right? right? Uh, And and like, I remember doing research for another project about um, the Franklin Expedition uh, Mm -hmm. going through the Northwest Passage. This is in the mid-1800s. And, you know, there were there were members on board those ships who certainly had syphilis, you know, and the the officers looked upon them as being, you know, less than because they had contracted such a thing. So it's this thing that's spread from one person to another. And
0: and it has these various stages. And I'm not going to go into um, into into the first two stages, but the, the, the later stage, tertiary syphilis, which occurs in 10 to 20 occurs 10 to 20 years after the initial affection. So, you know, quite a lot of time passes. And it, it, there are a number of symptoms that it involves. Uh, we're talking about tissue damage, muscle damage, organ damage, uh, coordination problems, paralysis, numbness, gradual blindness, dementia, uh, death. But where it really ties in nicely with the strain, uh, not only you know, the worms, of course, causing everything, mm-hmm. but... You would often see with syphilis the loss of the nose or the sinking of the nose into uh, what was called saddle nose, um, and this is where we saw an increased use of wigs, the increased use of cosmetics, and the increased use of fake noses
1: to cover up your own uh, essentially decaying nose. Yeah, this is uh, ironic because uh, just yesterday I was reading a piece that you had previously written in the stuff to blow your. Mind site mm-hmm. on stuff to blow your about uh, f- fake noses, artificial noses as prosthetics uh, because of syphilis, but also there were other people like uh, the famous scientist or astronomer Tycho Brahe oh, who yes. had his nose cut off in a sword fight, and I believe he wore a gold nose. Yeah, I think he had. I think he had a couple, but uh,
0: but yeah, I think he had a, he had a, like a brass or gold nose. At any rate,
1: he was he replaced his nose, but was not shy about it. He just he oh yeah, made it. Guy, no, he, he was very brash. He yeah. made it as obvious as possible. Yeah, kind of like. Hump,
0: <laughs> but in the stream, you see these, you know, these characters that have been degraded into these, uh, these Nosferatu-esque characters mm-hmm. by the parasite, they still have to interact with the world, some of them. And yeah. in those cases, what do they have to do? They have to put on wigs, they have to put on cosmetics, they have to put on a fake nose, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. all in order to, uh, to appear normal again. Also, you would see syphilis, uh, sufferers who would use cod pieces. This is also where we saw a resurgence of cod pieces, uh, or not, maybe not a resurgence, but, a uh. But uh, you, you saw an, an increased use of them okay. uh, due to a potential damage to
1: the genitalia. Well, maybe that's why some rock stars wear cod pieces. Uh, there you go. I it, think that's it's a what? holdover from <laughs> syphilis <laughs> days. Or it could be. It could be. Um, and,
0: uh, and according to um, Slavic and comparative literature professor Tomislav Langevich, Co- uh, commentators have often drawn a line of comparison between hereditary syphilis and vampirism, um, mm-hmm. because one of the the one of the things that you see with the congenital um, syphilis is the formation of, um, of sharp, pointy teeth, uh, which which are known as Hutchinson's teeth. Okay, uh, so it's you know de- def- deformations of the of the gums and teeth. You sometimes see long nails. You see elongated skulls. Um, and uh you know superficially it's easy to look at extreme cases of late syphilis and congenital syphilis because when you have congenital syphilis, a lot of times the uh, the physical deformities are really i mean they're taking place in the womb and they're pretty severe early on in life um, but you could, you could easily make a comparison between Count Orlock in Nosferatu and sure. a severe syphilis sufferer.
1: Yeah, I, re- I remember uh, the research that I had done on syphilis uh, again ar- about the sort of Arctic expedition mm-hmm. time. Some of the photos that I saw of um, like skulls or or, or uh, they had done like molds of people's heads. I mean, we're talking like uh, elephant man style yeah. deformations here. It's pretty rough. Uh, it looked incredibly painful. Uh, And this is a side note about syphilis. I don't know if you've heard this before, but here's a little tidbit, fun fact. There's a theory that Leon Cholgaz, who was the man who assassinated President McKinley, Mm -hmm. that he possibly had been infected with syphilis and was in second stage heading into third stage syphilis and that it was part of the disease acting upon his mind that made him go mad and try to kill the president.
0: Ah, well, you know, given the time period there, it seems very likely.
1: Yeah. It's possible. His nose didn't fall off. He hadn't started turning into, Mm -hmm. you know, a a deformed third tertiary stage syphilis victim. But uh, there's there's some some evidence people think that points in that direction.
0: Yeah, there are people that argue that uh, Bram Stoker may may he himself have uh, suffered from syphilis and that the novel Dracula Uh is or was his own way of exploring his own syphilitic condition. But there's not there's not any hard proof in that area.
1: Uh, so I feel like we've, we've gotten syphilis pretty well covered here. Uh, and like you said, there's two previous episodes all about it. So if you want to learn more about syphilis, go back through the archives and, uh, certainly uh, take the deep dive with Robert and Julie on that. Uh, let's get to another one. This is just a, a, a one that, uh, that guy Yong mentioned in his Ted talk. He talked mm-hmm. about the Guinea worm. Is this one that you've encountered in your, uh, various travels with parasites and monsters? I feel like we've covered Guinea worm in the past. Yeah. Okay. I think we, I could be wrong on this, but I think we did, a. um,
0: uh, something with uh, the Carter Center about Guinea Worms.
1: Oh, okay. Well, yeah, that would make sense, actually, given the work that mm-hmm. they do, because apparently the way that you are infected by these is from unclean drinking water. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the community that I live in, to the suburb just outside of Atlanta here, our, our water went off for three days last week. Uh, and the, I don't think Guinea Worms were what people were worried about, <laughs> but unclean drinking water was certainly on everybody's mind. We realized sort of how privileged our first world society yeah. is. But yeah, so you you are infected by this thing, and then what happens is it creates a burning blister on either your leg or your ankle. So, well, I guess your ankle is your leg, uh, and that what happens is it hurts so much and it, and it burns that your uh, inclination is to immediately go to the water. So here we go. This ties into the sort of vampire can't cross the water type thing. Yeah, uh, and
0: also vampire, um, not vampires, but parasites, um, twisting your behavior,
1: mm-hmm. manipulating you to do things. Exactly right, like. Was it your idea to do this? Did the parasite consciously say, I need to make this host of mine walk towards the river? Well, what happens is people go toward the water. They try to wash the blister. And what happens is the uh, the worm bursts out because they can only mate uh, in, in water. So it um, immediately bursts out of your skin and moves on. And then, you know, more, uh, I, I assume they must be microscopic in size when you're drinking them from the unclean water. hmm more produced. But then, let's get on... This is the big daddy monster parasite that really connects to, you know, uh, this del Toro strigoi, the horsehair worm. We, we just mentioned it briefly earlier, but let's let's really investigate this thing.
0: Yeah, we, we mentioned... You, you, if you look at any videos of this, it, it generally consists of some sort of an insect that's been squashed or it's near the water, and there's this uh, enormous uh, black worm. It looks like a like a a thick horse hair, you know, just long yeah. black. Doesn't have any other distinguishable features. Extremely long, extremely wiggly, just writhing and emerging from this uh, creature's abdomen and it's uh it's
1: grotesque if and you, beautiful and Yeah, <laughs> you're right. It's both of those things. It, it, if you haven't seen it, I think it's important to uh, to note like these things are like Three or four times the size of their host body in yeah. terms of like length. Yeah, once so they reached full size, when you see yeah. them start pouring out of like a dead cricket or whatever, it's mm-hmm. just ugh, it's <laughs> so nauseating because you just they unfurl.
0: Yeah, there there are a, a number of different ones. Uh, they're all from the phylum uh, Nematomorpha. and uh, the the way it works is this: uh, the adults are free living, but the larvae are parasitic and grow to adulthood in the body of an insect. Uh, male and female horsehair hairworms mate in damp soil and fresh water. So you may, if you're ever walking through the woods, uh, which I, I was once, and I actually looked in a puddle and I saw one squirming around. Really? Yeah. Um, so the, the males and the females, uh, they mate in damp soil or fresh water. The female lays just millions of eggs in this little puddle. And then the eggs hatch and tiny uh, larvae, uh, they, they insist on vegetation near the water's
1: edge. Okay, which is probably likely to be eaten. Right, right. Yeah, that's
0: what happens. Cricket or other uh, host drops by. They eat the, um, the, the, the vegetation. They end up consuming the insisted larvae. Uh, and in the case of, say, our carnivorous mantis, it acquires the parasite by devouring an intermediate host. So something else okay. eats the grass and then the
1: mantis eats it. And that's except. another common theme we're going to see with some of these creatures today.
0: Yeah, yeah, because the, the parasite's playing kind of the long game, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so once inside the final host, be it the thing that ate the plant or the thing that ate the thing that ate the plant, um, The cyst covering dissolves in the insect's gut, and it allows the juvenile worm to escape, bore through the gut
1: wall, and start absorbing nutrients. Uh, and and that's you know similar to what we were just talking about with the guinea worm. That's when it bursts free, right after after it's sort of taken as many nutrients as it can.
0: Yeah, once it's reached full size. But here's the thing, and this is something that that uh, researchers are still exploring. Okay. So if you if the host dies, if somebody squashes it on a band room floor, mm-hmm. the worm emerges. But obviously, this is a situation where spaceship cricket is going down, and so yeah. the parasite that is piloting the spaceship at this Certainly. point has to get off, has to has to disembark. But remember how we talked about the puddle, right?
1: Yeah, the puddle is where it needs to go, right? So it, it, it unlike the guinea worm, it doesn't encourage its host to go towards uh, wet areas. Well, or is it? Researchers are sort of still research. trying to figure that out okay. because there
0: are two possibilities. One, either the uh, the either the horsehair worm waits until its host inevitably returns to an area near water and okay. then punches out through the abdomen, or it manipulates the host into seeking out
1: water. Okay, so this is again very much very vampir- vampiristic.
0: Yeah. And there's there's actually some some compelling evidence toward the the brain hacking yeah. uh, situation, like observations of of, uh, of of mantises jumping into the water, like you know limbing style. You
1: like, know, now that you're saying this, I do remember from Young's talk that he said that uh, there's evidence that they release a certain kind of protein mm-hmm. into the crickets' brains that. Add- their brains so that they head toward water. Yeah,
0: yeah. Like I say, I feel like the the evidence for uh, brain hacking is pretty compelling here, and and ultimately makes the creature all the more fascinating. Now, I know what you're wondering: can it infect humans? Mm. Well, yes, it can. Um, they are uh, human infections are possible, though. Not that likely. Uh, the, the human is not of course the intended host, but, uh, there were two Japanese cases reported in 2012, uh, but these were due to of course just
1: accidental ingestion of infected insects. So these two humans had re- eaten a cricket or something like that, and, yeah. and that cricket had yet to burst its, uh, its horsehair worm.
0: Yeah, I actually have a quote from the the study here. It says, the woman uh, vomited a worm after gargling with a saline solution as she felt something was caught in her throat while she was lying in bed. She had eaten vegetables harvested from a private garden. The other worm from the mouth of a boy was removed by his mother. So... (sighs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> so uh you said that you've seen these so I'm assuming that they're uh, in indigenous to the Southeast United States where oh, yeah. we live it sounds like they're also indigenous to Japan are they just everywhere I think they're just everywhere yeah okay. they're in they're in Asia they're in Europe they're in
0: the United States they're um, anywhere there is a a warm, safe insect belly in which to grow. Mm. There you will find the horsehair worm, oh, this- and maybe inside us. Yeah, think right. back to how well you washed your greens. Well, it also
1: makes me kind of want. Right, like uh, how many autopsy tables have. Uh- You know, somebody dies and then all of a sudden a a little worm just kind of pokes its way out and uh, (laughs) makes its way over to the sink or something, you know. I mean, I don't think that they're that insidious, obviously, but this is clearly where Del Toro got the inspiration from. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's one last... Creepy fact about the horsehair worm. I want to throw in here. This is also from Yong's talk. He said that there was a Japanese scientist named uh, Takuya Sato who found one stream where there were so many of these things, and they'd infected so many crickets that it just had filled up the stream with crickets. And over sixty percent of the local trout's diet were the crickets who had been infected by horsehair worms, and then subsequently horsehair worms themselves. Ah.
0: Oh, I, I also remember reading in one of these articles that generally the host has only one horsehair worm inside it. Okay. But it is possible to wind up with twins where you have two of these things yeah. riding around inside you. Wow. Okay. All right. Well, let's uh, let's move on. What else do we
1: have on the uh, the parasitic uh, poo poo bladder? Well, here? we've got a, a, a zombie fungus here, and uh, you seem familiar with this when we were first talking about this. But I, I believe it's pronounced Ophiocordyceps. Is yeah. that correct. Cordyceps. Yeah. Okay. So this is also commonly known as the zombie fungus. And what I had heard was that. Uh, I say, it, I heard, like, down on the street, you know, they talk about the zombie fungus. <laughs> I read about it. Uh, it drives carpenter ants, like, so that they get infected with this fungus, and carpenter ants then go to find a more suitable home for the fungus, and, the, and it bursts out. So, uh, Young jokes about this in his talk. As you can already tell, the common theme is, something gets in you, it drives you to go somewhere, and then it bursts out of your body and kills yeah. you. Now, you had some other research on these. There's more than one cordyceps. Oh, right? yeah. There are
0: thousands of different cordyceps, and each one is aimed at a different insect species. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, though, uh, bullet ants are infected by one particular type of cordyceps, and uh, it manipulates the behavior of the ant. It causes it to uh, climb um, up uh, about uh, 25 uh uh, centimeters above the usual ant trail, usually facing northwest, clamp on with its jaws, uh, generally around noon, and just not let go. And huh. then within six hours, it dies. A few days later, a tube sprouts out of its head, and this is the fruiting body of the fungus. It you know blasts out the spores, and then these up inf- end up infecting uh, new ants. So um, it's... Uh, it, it's it kind of it essentially it, it makes the the ant go raise itself up like a flag on a flagpole yeah. die and then spread its its uh, spores.
1: What's um I mean surely it, this seems very specific northwest at noon. What's the specific uh um there must be some kind of reason for that like as the sun as it's at its highest and that subsequently makes it easier for the fungus to loom or something I don't
0: know I guess so or it's you know tapping into existing you know behavioral yeah um, maybe that's it. The ant. but huh. um, if the generally what happens to in these uh, these social ant colonies if they discover a worker that uh, is exhibiting some of the characteristics of a cordyceps infected ant, they'll mm-hmm. remove them and take their body out and dump them somewhere else because they
1: know. That, really? Yeah, that they are pariahs. So they're like the vampire hunter ants.
0: Yeah, yeah, like they 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 are aware of the vampire issue and they will remove them if there's something fishy.
1: Huh. Uh, this reminds me of the recent movie Ant Man that's just come out too, where okay. apparently through some science, like a they they just wear like Bluetooths basically <laughs> in their ear that allows them to control ants. And now I'm wondering if uh, they could backtrack and do a pseudoscience explanation of it by saying that they've they've infected these ants with the zombie fungus.
0: Well, you know, there are a lot of interesting um, species that live among ants. Um, and one in particular I was reading about the other day is a, is a type of beetle. Uh, and if you want the details on this, I did a Monster of the Week about The Thing. You know, oh, yeah. John Carpenter's The Thing, and I'll, I'll link to it on the link. page. That was pretty recent, right? Yeah. But, uh, but in that, I tied in... This uh, this particular beetle that lives among the ants and it uses mm-hmm. scent and uh, and audible cues to convince the other ants that it is either worker ant or sometimes even royalty within the colony. Wow! So okay. that it can live amongst the ants undetected, eat their larvae. And also benefit from the protection of the hive because it's like it's like living in a bank vault, you know. It's like right. living in a medieval castle in the insect world. You're pretty safe in there, and if you're if you can get away with eating some of the babies in the castle, all the better. Yeah, absolutely. So that's the ant man wasn't that
1: you. dark, but I believe that they just said something very quickly about pheromones. Yeah. You know, that's usually just pheromones. That's how we do it. So what do we have? We have a uh, parasitic castration next. Right? Oh yeah, mm.
0: yes. Uh, because of course, uh, the strain has some wonderful scenes where the characters who are changing suddenly re- realize that their genitals are rotting and or falling off, and then whoops, they finally drop their pants, look in the mirror, and there is this kind doll like molding. Yeah, thing.
1: yeah. As I mentioned at the top, it's like they get rid of everything that uh that they, that the, the the vampire biology no longer needs. And it just falls off. They, I do remember this from the television show that they made a rather big production of, about one character yeah. uh, going through that process. And um, yeah, it was grisly. Yeah, uh, but yeah, you're right. They've got the sort of uh, uh, action figure uh, Barbie doll body, uh, and they're very smooth. Mm-hmm. So all that stuff falls off. So the parasitic castration is similar to this. Yes? Yeah, and it's you know it's ghastly, but it's. Uh- purely
0: economical, because uh, in the case of The Strain, the 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 little stegori worm it, does, it doesn't need these host creatures to breed mm-hmm. it doesn't it, this is not a part of its functional biology anymore and so uh, in the natural world we see uh, parasitic castration as a as a tactic where they they shut off reproduction in the host generally in order to hoard all the energy resources for themselves oh okay because this is your host you're you gaming this organism mm. and so any uh, energy expenditure and and certainly. In organisms, mating energy expenditures are kind of high. So right. if you can shut that off, then uh, you've streamlined uh, the, uh, the, the, the energy efficiency of the organism for yourself. Um, there are numerous accounts of this. Uh, but one, uh, one that came to mind here is a parasitic, a parasitic barnacle called uh, Sacculina carcini. And uh, this parasite stops reproduction in the host crab. And, sti- and and end up ends up stimulating the female crab to disperse parasitic eggs uh, in the, with the same behavior that she would normally use to lay her own eggs. So using wow. the same uh, you know mouth uh, well I don't know if their mouth parts but using the the same uh, her, her same physiological gifts to distribute the parasite
1: uh, young that she would normally use to distribute her own eggs. I you have a note here too about how trematode parasites also use this to destroy the gonads of their victims. Yeah, because again, what, is, what does it have gonads for?
0: This right. is, you know, the parasites essentially saying, "This is not a free-roaming uh, crab or insect. It's uh, it's it's my car now, and I my car does not need gonads."
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> so. Uh I'm going to save this. There's a particular one that we're going to get to that I, I had a nightmare about last night. So we're we're heading towards it though. <laughs> the parasitic castration made me think about it. This is the first time working on an episode of stuff to blow your mind. I've had a nightmare. <laughs> well, welcome to the show, Christian. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so uh, another one is this is not the one I was thinking of, but the the, the hookworm, which many of us are familiar with, or it's also uh, called a nematode. Uh, you know, this is just your, your average hookworm parasite that sucks the blood from within its host. Very vampiric. Uh, it burrows into your skin and migrates to small intestines. And we're talking about humans here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, especially in the South here, we were big on the, uh, the hookworm. Mm, so, uh,
0: not too, not too uh, long ago.
1: Sometimes they can suck so much blood from within your body that you can get anemia. So you will probably be aware of this and here is a stunning fact when i was looking this up they currently infect 600 million people in the world so that's a lot i mean when you think about it you know i was joking earlier about our sort of first world uh plumbing problems of having clean water that's readily available but uh man 600 people 600 million people in the world are carrying around hookworms and can't do anything about it
0: well then you have the interesting situation where Hookworm free individuals have sought them out. Um, there, there's been some interesting uh, content to come out uh, in previous years about this where there's the argument uh-huh. that humans have had hookworms for so long that we've kind of co-evolved with them. Okay. And we've reached the point where we kind of don't work right if, we, if we're missing the hookworms. Really? So you have, uh, you've, you've had cases where uh, certain individuals have claimed that as hookworm free organisms they're they, they don't work right. They, they're not so, functioning like,
1: properly. They have all these allergies, what, et cetera. IBS or some yeah, kind of, yeah some some kind of modern malady.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of times it is just excessive allergies. Okay, and then they seek out the hookworm infection. Yeah, and uh, and 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 acquire hookworms by saying going to a latrine field, uh, field in Africa. There was uh, this American Life about uh, this one individual, British individual, who did this. I really, I think he was British, or he ended up fleeing to Britain. Anyway, he. Um, he went and acquired hookworms, and he was actually selling them online for a little bit uh, to like-minded individuals. Interesting. Um, the thing is, he's kind of acting ahead of the research. There's actual research that's looking into this, saying, so you know, to what extent have, do, we, uh, do we benefit from a mild hookworm infestation in our bodies? You know, not enough to actually cause anema, anemia, but enough mm-hmm. to, um, to sort of balance things out and give our body the... the the level of infection and occupancy that it has
1: come to expect. So it's sort of like the uh, uh, symbiotic relationship many animals have with parasitic uh, parasites have with their hosts.
0: Yeah, I mean, across the board when you look at, at parasites and symbiotic relationships, there's often kind of that gray area, like when does when does a parasite stop being a parasite and start right. being, becoming a, a symbiotic organism? At which point does it stop becoming a parasite and become a part of who you are? Such For, as you know all the uh, bacteria in our bodies.
1: Yeah, like I'm thinking of lampreys, uh, where I grew up in New England. Lampreys are really uh, common in the the rivers around mm-hmm. there, and the, they certainly work off of hosts and kind of you know to the, the maintain one another's uh, ecology. But there's also um, what are the what are the, what are the i'm forgetting the name right now but the fish that clean sharks oh remoras
0: uh, yeah i believe so yeah, yeah the, the little yeah the little cleaning organisms
1: yeah right yeah there. yeah uh, maybe that's a, maybe the hookworm is our remora yeah i mean there i've
0: i've read some interesting uh, uh, speculative uh, biology about uh about the origins of the vampire bat. Mm-hmm. And there are some uh, there's some uh, theories that vampire bats originated as, as 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 in as creatures that would would feed uh, clean up the wounds of uh, giant you know megafauna, mm-hmm. And then over time, that develops into just full blown
1: parasitism. Yeah. Well, that is, you know, if your stomach hasn't turned yet <laughs> from our hookworms and syphilis and zombie fungus, what have we got next for you? That's like a vampire from a from a science fiction TV show. Of course, we could keep
0: going. We're actually going to have to cut a couple of uh, parasites from our notes uh, just to, so that we don't go too long here. Uh, but the next one we're going to look at is Cymathoa exigua, um, which is this uh, cool isopod creature that a number of you are probably familiar with kind of looks like a like a, a sand louse a little bit like a, a kind of
1: beetle or an enlarged tick or something like that. Yeah, I think it's actually kin to like the little roly poly uh, creatures you see. Mm-hmm. But, uh, if you've seen the horror movie The Bay which came out about 2 maybe 3 years ago, the whole movie surrounded the idea of uh these sort of mutated isopods infecting human beings. Oh, did you see it? I did. Yeah. It,
0: does it actually like replace their tongue? Yeah. It does. Yeah. There, it,
1: I mean, the whole movie sort of builds up to, uh, that, that's the, the, the big scene. But they, they, they cut it. It's found footage, so they cut it with footage of actual isopods inside fish mouths replacing their tongues.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot of our listeners are familiar with this one because I, I think we've covered it on the podcast before. And it's it's also one of these things that just really became viral because it's horrifying. Yeah. This idea that you, you look in the fish's mouth, and there, instead of the fish's tongue, uh, you have this little crustacean that is just yeah. sitting there, perched on the on its tongue stump, mm. acting as its tongue.
1: Just like, you know, you open this mouth and there's a little guy and there's, hello! Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. There, I think there's some, some lovely cartoons out there
1: <laughs> where they, uh, they explore that. Um, this is, so I mentioned earlier, I, I had a nightmare doing the research of this episode, and this was, I think it was sort of an amalgamation of all the parasites that we're talking mm-hmm. about here, but the isopod in particular is one that gets me. I uh, Before I went to bed last night, my my uh throat was a little inflamed I think like my allergies were bothering me mm-hmm. and in the night I had this you know horrifying nightmare <laughs> about something crawling around in my throat it was probably mixed in with the strain as well with the you know the whole idea that your voice box and lungs collapse and fuse into the stinger thing but the isopod is really I mean that's that's pretty close to the strain there where your tongue is replaced by a living
0: thing. <laughs> yeah, and it's horrifying to think of, of a fish experiencing this, because the fish can't just reach in and do anything about right. it. It's just kind of, it's just got to roll with it at this point. You, this thing painfully like drains your tongue juice out, and then it just atrophies and then attaches to the stump, and then it becomes your new tongue. And, and you know feeding off of morsels of food and mucus, it's... It's horrifying.
1: Yeah, and to be clear here, uh, my understanding is that they do not do this to humans. There hasn't been a case yep. where a human's tongue has been replaced by one of these things, right? But and that
0: movie exists; it's fictional. Yeah, and the the, the isopods in question here—they, I don't. Uh, it's my understanding too that that uh, we, we still need a lot more research on them. There isn't a lot of. of, of, of there isn't a lot of study into their biology, yeah. uh, and their their life cycle. But uh, but hopefully in the years years to come, we'll learn more about their their marvelous lifestyle.
1: But yeah, if you certainly if you want to see some twitchy imagery, uh, do an image search for isopods because just in general, not even just the ones the the, the simothia, as you mentioned earlier, uh, they, they're creepy. They're, yeah. There's some there's something about them that just uh, doesn't doesn't work for me. Uh, so okay. Wasps, there are a lot of different parasitic wasps. So they're, this is sort of a, a broad category, but I think it's important for us to cover in this relation to the strain because mm-hmm. there's so many of them, but they, they commonly have, uh, this, this trait where they lay eggs inside of a host. Uh, the, the, the generic one that I read about was that they lay eggs inside a caterpillar, right? Mm-hmm. And they, these eggs hatch inside the caterpillar's body devour it from the inside out and then come you know burst out of its body again like the, the 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 stereotype of all these things, right? Here's where it gets even weirder. Some of these wasps stay behind in the corpse of this caterpillar to defend other wasps that are still metamorphosizing inside of it. Mm-hmm. And they will like like people wearing a horse costume, sort of, they manipulate the wa- uh, the caterpillar's corpse, so it seems like it's still alive. And they try to chase away predators. They'll move it and kind of twitch it around, and st- it's it's uh, ooh, horrifying. Yeah, when you start looking at parasitic wasps,
0: there's so many fabulous examples. Like there's a, a study that I was just reading, an embargoed study that's coming out and will have come out by the time this episode airs, uh, in which uh, a particular wasp actually makes the infected uh, spiders build it uh, build a protection for it. Yeah. Uh, and uh one of my favorites is uh, a particular wasp, uh, Dinocampus coccinella, and uh it, it does the, you know, the traditional um, parasitic setup here. It ambushes uh, a ladybug, uh, implants its uh, its egg inside it, and then uh, and then runs off, right? So eventually the, uh, the the young wasp emerges from the host organism mm-hmm. and a lot of times you you, know, you would expect the host organism to mercifully die off uh, but in this case, not only does the ladybug live, but a little behavior modification from the parasite forces it to hang around and guard the parasite baby as it grows into full adulthood beneath the protective bulk of the ladybug. Yeah. Uh, and they think it's due to secretions that are left by the larva when it bursts out that, you know, functionally reprogram it. And then on top of that, the ladybug doesn't even die then. Um the researchers found that 20, in 25 percent of the uh, the cases, the the, the ladybugs
1: recovered uh, normal behavior following the ordeal. Really? Yeah. So this is really gets to the heart of that theme of taking away independence. Mm-hmm. The, these parasitic organisms doing so, but also that it, it it gains it back. It get it gets its life back afterwards. if so well. I mean, it has nice. this hole in it, I
0: guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But it, it, I, it, I, I can't help but imagine like a human scenario. Like, yeah. what if we lived in a world where occasionally you're just impregnated by a parasite and you essentially give birth to this thing as it emerges mm-hmm. from you, you know, alien chest bur- burster style? But then you live on to, you know, go to support groups for likewise uh, parasite afflicted individuals. Well, I
1: mean, I suppose that, that that you could argue that that's what's going on with some people of hookworm or tapeworm oh, yeah. and, and and such, but they're not uh reprogrammed to guard the tapeworms uh layer you know <laughs> uh there's another just one more parasitic wasp that uh I wanted to touch on here the ampulex compressa which is the emerald cockroach wasp. Ooh. This one does a similar thing that uh for the ladybug but it's with cockroaches. I like that they all have their own like like specific breed of other insect that they you know mind control and destroy. Mm-hmm. So this one uh lands on a cockroach stabs it when it's, uh, fertilized with eggs, the wasp, uh, the stinger that it stabs it with is also a sense organ. So it kind of roots around inside the cockroach and touches its brain and it injects a certain kind of venom into the cockroach's brain that basically takes away the cockroach's motivation to escape danger at all. So the cockroach becomes placid and just follows the, this wasp. Well, that's a gift really, right? Yeah. I mean, taking away, you know, fear. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, they give, they, they take, but uh, this is where it gets really nasty. Uh, it leads the cockroach away from where it lives, back to the wasp's lair, lays the eggs in it, and then what do you think happens? Um, everyone goes their separate ways? Unfortunately, no. <laughs> uh, the uh, wasp eggs hatch and burst out of the cockroach and kill it. <laughs> wow. So a lot, of, a lot of bursting, more bursting. It's a beautiful world. It's a beautiful parasitic yeah. world. Yeah, I mean, uh, I would say, you know, we're specifically trying to associate these with the vampires from the strain, but I would say that a lot of these resonate with the, uh, xenomorph from Alien. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, it's very, very parasitic in that regard. And the crazy thing is, like, is,
0: is elaborate as, uh, the Sigori. um, uh, life cycle is as elaborate as the xenomorph life cycle is. You look at some of the the, um, the charts showing you uh, various parasitic life cycles mm-hmm. and all the different hosts they have to go through, and some of these are tremendously complex. Like yeah. you could never do a TV show about them because everyone have, would have to keep referring to uh, uh, you
1: know flashcards to keep up with the life cycle. Especially when you get these ones, which we didn't we didn't cover that much here, but the ones that go from one host to another host to another host. Mm -hmm. So they, they, their ultimate end goal, for instance, is like a flamingo, but they get eaten by a cricket or something first. And then they, they, they're inside the cricket and then the cricket's eaten by a flamingo or something like that, you know? Uh, it, it They move on and on and on to get to the eventual thing that they can reproduce in
0: yeah, and then and then very often they 're hacking the mind of the host they 're manipulating behavior in order to game it back towards that that uh, that start point or that end point right exactly, all right, so there you have it the the strain, the world of parasites, and uh, i 'll make sure that the landing page for this episode includes links to a, a whole bunch of uh, stuff to blow your mind content about parasites and their wonderful ways.
1: Yeah, I was going to say this research really, I think, is in the uh, 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 golden zone for stuff to blow your mind. There's a lot of previous episodes and videos and posts that uh, you've done over the years on this. And, uh, You know, I, I would love to hear from our listeners as well about their experience with these things. Whether, you know, maybe there's somebody out there who's had hookworm or maybe there's somebody who's had experience researching these things and could tell us more about them. It really is. Stuff we're going to just keep on covering because oh, yeah. it's fascinating, and there's always more research. coming Yeah, they're
0: continually it. finding cool new, cool new parasites and new understandings of how existing uh, parasites work. So, if
1: you want to tell us your stories about these, you can contact us on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr, where we are Blow the Mind, or you can write to us at Blow the Mind at HowStuffWorks.com.